Welcome to the Filmlings Podcast, a weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is week 47, Dauntless Documentaries. Yes, it is, as you can see by uh, the books on our table. Yeah, so we have a couple of books from my documentary class in college, Documenting the Documentary, which is actually very good, a series of... uh, Essays over different documentary films and stuff, which uh, we may bring up a little bit because Thin Blue Line is covered in there and some others that we're not talking about this week. Um, But before we get into what we are talking about, let's just talk about um, a little background on documentaries. Uh, And really, if you think about it, like the first film clips that were filmed in like the late 1800s, early 1900s, basically were documentaries because they were just figuring out how to make moving images so they would just record like little slices of life. Yeah. Yeah, it was actually a train pulling into the station where it's just a train. Right. (laughs) Right. Just pulling into the station. There were a lot of uh, Lumiere brother films, which were just uh, factory workers leaving various factories Mm -hmm. in different cities. Um, as we talked about, uh, Russian propaganda, (laughs) right. As we talked about, um, on the world tour, uh, you know, the Lumiere brothers would, uh, almost introduced cinema to the world in a lot of countries yeah, yeah. because right when the technology came out, they essentially did a world tour where they went around and they a got really interesting film clips. So like you know, a film clip from China would be really interesting to show in Europe, and a film clip from Europe would be really interesting to show China and vice versa. Um, so they got a really in- a lot of a lot of interesting things that way. Um, and also one of the first. Um, display formats, the first um, exhibition formats before there were even movie theaters, were uh, kinetoscopes, which was an Edison convin- uh, invention. And there were other like knockoff copy um, inventions of the same type. But it was essentially a little booth, um, and we might be able to link a diagram in the blog post, um, that you would look in through the top of, and you would crank a hand, you would put in like a nickel or a penny. Uh, like a penny slot and you would crank it and it would play a little roll of film and it would be little documentary type things that wouldn't be acknowledged as documentary as documentary versus narrative but it would be something like boxers fighting or like a a sideshow or Or a ballet dancer or whatever (laughs) really interestingly as I saw at um, I was at the Museum of the Moving Image the other weekend in uh, Queens, New York and I saw this, this compilation of really early film footage and a lot of it was cat videos. <laughs> really? <laughs> Which, so if you've ever wondered if oh my like gosh. cat videos are a new phenomenon, like just an internet thing, like no, nope. it's, we've always <laughs> been obsessed with putting cats and um, dogs and very cute things on, on film. That's funny. Well, they are very interesting and no one really knows how they work. Yeah, so I don't know. <laughs> no one really knows. There was actually like a really interesting experiment where people did a uh, high, high speed cranking to figure out how a cat always lands on its feet. Really? That was one of the huh. first ones. And that's very much a, both a scientific experiment and basically a documentary yeah. about how cats land on their that's feet. That's funny. Um, so and uh, if you want to know the history of documentary, it starts <laughs> with cats. Yeah, um, that's Partially. <laughs> not, not in its entirety. But in its true form, documentary uh, is kind of recognized as starting with Robert Flaherty's, uh, and I'm not exactly sure how to say that, but... Flaherty? Flaherty, 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 who knows? Uh, name spelled here because we're on video today. So he made a film called Nanak of the North, which um, 
kind of illustrates the life of this Inuit man um, or Eskimo and kind of going through these different um, customs and stuff like that. And the film actually got some flack later after it was released because basically they found out that um, the man that he was following, they kind of like staged some of this stuff. Like this wasn't actually how the Inuits were living at the time when the film came out. It was more traditional style of life that was being presented as reality and kind of... uh, this romanticized view of what Eskimos are, uh, but it's right. still it still was like structured as like following. This is a day in the life, and this is like early silent film uh, era. But that is kind of recognized as the first um, documentary film structured as such. Yeah, yeah, and of course you also have again going back to our world tour series um, over in Russia or the Soviet Union at the time. You had uh, Vertov's Man with a Movie Camera, which is. It's kind of a weird... It's kind of like a pseudo-documentary. Yeah. It's kind of playing with the idea of cinema verite before cinema verite really solidified thing. itself mm-hmm. as a concept. Um, but it, it's... The, the only character is really a man with a movie camera. And that's the only guy who's a character is the cameraman. Yeah. Um, and he goes through uh, the, a city and films different things throughout it. And everything except for the man is basically documentary is is what's really going on yeah. um and it's kind of like this first meta look um at the art of movie making and filmmaking that documentary kind of gives us a glimpse into um because it kind of has because documentary kind of has to acknowledge that it's not it has to drop that screen of pretending it's reality. Yeah, because there's one of the major tenets of documentary, which we're going to be talking about a lot this week, is the idea or the fact that when you put a camera in a room in front of people, it changes what happens in that room than would have been different outside of that. And documentaries, like as long as they have been existing, have been trying to make that line between like what really is happening and what is what changes because there's a camera present just the presence of the camera changes things and like the the whole purpose of documentaries since they existed have been either um acknowledging that and kind of running with that as we'll see in two of our films or trying to make that distinction dissolve as much as possible which we'll see in great gardens um and people have done all different kinds of things to try and make that happen right right it's kind of like now i'm i'm a film major so stem things are kind of a foreign concept to me. Oh yeah. So, but I believe there's like a quantum mechanics or physics principle, and I'm sure I'll catch flack to all you with all you <laughs> stem majors out there. So feel free to correct me, um, please do. Um, but I believe like you you alter the outcome by observing something. Yeah. Like there's some, like a some, to some extent, scientific right. experimental principle um, that that says that and the same is very true with subjects like by putting a camera on somebody they act very differently yeah and i think yeah being when you when you change observing to recording that changes even more yeah yeah and if you if you don't believe this um well conveniently we live in a age where everybody has a camera in their pocket and just whip that out and turn it landscape not portrait what are you a savage turn it landscape (laughs) Um, and point it at your friends or your family or your coworker. Well, not your coworkers. That might be harassment. Just your friends <laughs> and your family, um, and see what they do. And it probably won't be acting natural. Yeah. <laughs> but the the other thing that's interesting these days is that because of the prevalence of recording devices, like almost everything is performance <laughs> at this point. Almost. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's there's a great. Um, 
Frank Capra quote uh, from his autobiography where he talks about how the invention of television has turned everyone into a performer. There's no like, yeah, it's everyone is wanting to get on camera and be like uh, perceived in a certain way. And I think that is just like exponentially true uh, today. But we digress. And uh, moving along from uh, Russia and Vertog's Man with the Movie Camera, kind of the next big uh, pocket of documentary history. It comes in World War II and um, the kind of explosion of propaganda cinema, which uh, had existed, kind of exists any time that you make a film with a heavy bias, but definitely during the war, you have propaganda on both sides uh, being extremely influential. So specifically in Germany, you have Lenny Reifenstahl's uh, Triumph of the Will, which was a huge Nazi propaganda, still viewed as like a really powerful uh, use of propaganda in documentary filmmaking. And then in America, you have uh, Frank Capra's Why We Fight series, which is a series of seven videos trying to encourage people to join the, the war cause in different capacities and stuff like that. And he's not the only one that made those kinds of films. Uh, during World War II in America, but he was one of the major yeah, filmmakers. Yeah, a lot of filmmakers uh, during World War II were drafted or enlisted. A lot of uh-huh. them signed up of their own volition into the armed services, ended up in the signal corps of various branches of the military, um, which is where they essentially made documentaries. They recorded uh, footage just of battles. There's some really famous footage of uh, concentration camps, mm-hmm. camps being discovered and liberated for the first time, um, which is really striking um, from this era of history. And there's actually a really interesting documentary on Netflix now called Five Came Back, which documents Frank Capra and a bunch of these other filmmakers who went overseas for the yeah. war and came back and did their experience. So it's actually like a documentary about documentarians. <laughs> right. So like we're hitting that meta level. Um which just tends to happen with documentary yeah. because you're just acknowledging the meta-ness of it all yeah. and you just go. We hit that in two of these movies this week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's meta It's meta all the way down. And then in the 70s, uh, filmmaking equipment and gear became a lot lighter. We figured out ways to make audio recording gear and cameras that um, can be carried around handheld. Um, a lot easier than the big clumpy clunky cameras that had to have huge tripods and (laughs) all that kind of stuff. So you get a lot of people now have cameras that they can walk around and start, um, doing things on their own. And that, that gives us cinema verite because when you can take a camera unencumbered into an environment and start filming things, uh, the idea with cinema verite is to capture life as it happens. Cinema truth verite, um, and so that's where you're trying to dissolve that line between what happens with a camera and what doesn't. Because before it was a lot of, uh, you know, you do your interviews and you show uh, B-roll and stuff like that. So now we can, um, like, one of a couple of the most famous ones, uh, we're going to talk about one today, Grey Gardens. But there's also Salesman, also by the Maisel Brothers, and also uh, Titty Cut Follies, which is a really powerful film um, inside of... Uh, an insane asylum, uh, a mental hospital uh, for the criminally insane. And it's all just completely cinema verite, uh, fly on the wall kind of a thing, um, filming the treatment and uh, what goes on in this hospital uh, and how the patients are treated and stuff like that. It's really fascinating and heartbreaking and it's actually really, really hard to find. And I was fortunate enough to see it in my uh, 
documentary class, but that kind of stuff is happening in the seventies. Um, and I don't remember when, uh, Roger and me came out, but that's kind of in the same vein. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, um, ever since, you know, the film Brad generation, the advent of film schools and the mid century shift in filmmaking, um, those who like film, those who make films have become obsessed with thinking about films. And we've seen the rise of auteur, uh, theory that came out of the French new wave and the people who created the French new wave. Um, and the same thing goes for a documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same thing is present with, you know, how does, uh, the director of a documentary, the auteur of a documentary affect how the documentary outlook, um, uh, views its subjects and how does it try to treat all these other different theories that we've kind of been setting up in this intro here. Um, like, does it try to maximize, uh, the meta level where you're aware that you're watching a, a yeah. storytelling going on. Um, does it try to reduce itself to the point where it's just a fly in a wall? Does it try to give a glimpse of it? Like some sneaky mirror shots of yeah. the cameraman, which we might see today. <laughs> um, and it's, it's a really interesting theory, especially in comparison to narrative because it presents a slightly different array of options or um, discussion topics for what an auteur is in documentary versus what an auteur is in narrative. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see that in uh, The Thin Blue Line, who kind of kicks this off, where in the middle of all of this uh, cinema verite craze and stuff, uh, Errol Morris is like, you know, what if we kind of stage things and like almost incorporate elements of fictional filmmaking into documentaries and put the filmmaker stamp on it and not try to hide and say, this is just real, this is unbiased, but saying, okay, I have something to say, and how do we yeah. say that? Yeah, and it, it gets to a really interesting idea about truth itself, which, oh boy, I'm going to wax <laughs> poetic on, so just brace yourself right. for that. But we've waxed poetic enough uh, just about the background, so what are we actually talking about today, Alex? Today we're talking about three films, yes, three, <laughs> because that's kind of just become a most morium here on... Yeah. The filmings, but the first one is going to be Great Gardens from 1975, directed by um, the Maisel brothers, Albert and David. Mm-hmm. Um, the second one will be The Thin Blue Line from 1988, directed by Errol Morris, who we've already mentioned, and Grizzly Man from 2005, which is directed by the Werner Herzog. Werner Herzog. Oh, one of the most famous, <laughs> one of the most famous voices right. in film. I think more people know about his accent <laughs> than know have seen his movies. Than what he actually does, yeah. And that's actually true. And I feel, man, it, and this is something <laughs> that I think we both talked about independently um, as uh, cinephiles, as people who love movies. I've never seen a Werner Herzog movie until this week. Oh, really? Until this is the first Werner Herzog movie I've, mm-hmm. I've watched. I've seen a lot of other movies by a lot of other directors who, if I talk to a cinephile, a fellow cinephile, a fellow film lover, and they hadn't have seen anything by that director, I would be, I would be taken aback. I'd be like, oh my gosh, yeah. you haven't seen a Wes Anderson <laughs> film, which obviously plenty of people have seen Wes Anderson, but you know that, and that's just something that comes with the territory. Um, and I think a lot of people would be like, oh my gosh, you haven't seen a uh, Werner Herzog movie. Now I now have. You have. Now I have. Yeah, I think uh, Grizzly Man I had seen before, and I think it's the only Werner Herzog film that I've seen. However, uh, Werner Herzog is interesting because he does so many different things. He doesn't just do documentary. He does fiction film, and he also acts. And I saw him right. in, what was it, uh, 
uh, Jack Ryan, I think, where he was the bad guy. Really? Um, yeah, he was this oh. really creepy. He like bit his fingers off or something. I don't. Know. <laughs> it was a weird movie, but uh, Werner Herzog was the bad for guy, conflict. and he does his wonderful voice and he just we got to hear it a lot this week as he talks very slowly <laughs> if anyone hasn't heard his take on um the pokemon go app oh really i recommend that he loves What's it that? because it means conflict oh that's funny yeah it's like, he, it's we like do lo- so no. two people meet in the street in the street <laughs> and they, they have battle they have conflict <laughs> yeah He's very excited by the prospect of it. As Even we though the battling... this week, Werner Herzog believes the common denominator of the universe is conflict and death. <laughs> yes, no, he is a, he's he's not an optimist. No, not by any stretch of the <laughs> not imagination. by any stretch of the mean of the um, imagination of the means. <laughs> by any stretch of the means. Yeah. All right. Yeah. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. All right, so our first film of the day, as I might have just mentioned, is Grey Gardens from 1975. Um, which is a story that I'll set up in brief because mm-hmm. there's not a lot of plot in it. It's just kind of like a really rich character study. Yeah. Um, this is epitomal Literally getting down to the nitty gritty, dirty, disgusting, <laughs> dark and dank parts of some characters. J- yeah. The two characters. Slice of life with the drugs and everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not pretty. Anyway. Uh, so Grey Gardens covers the story of the Grey Garden ex- estate, mm-hmm. um, which is in East Hampton, New York, out in the Long Islands. The Hamptons, if you don't know, are um, kind of like the uppity vacation spot on the far end of Long Island where a lot of people from the city would go to uh, to vacation. They still go to vacation. Um, but this house in the Hamptons is unlike the others. It is rundown, grody, and nasty. Uh, and the occupants happen to be Jacqueline Kennedy's um, aunt and cousin. So they're they used to be high class. Not anymore. Yeah. They like they don't have any money anymore. They're basically living in their own filth. They live on their own. They don't take care of themselves. They don't take care of that anything. house. Yeah. There's like there's cats living in the house. There's raccoons, raccoons tearing walls down. <laughs> yeah, tearing walls down. Like the opening shot is, or one of the opening scenes is like a raccoon busting a hole in the wall. Well, yeah. Or it's you, just you, the hole that the raccoons the busted. And then near the end of the film, like that entire wall is just gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like you can see the, the house degrading over the course yeah. of the film. Um, and it's very clear that these ladies, who are both named yeah. Edith Beale. And they have the same middle name, too, which so I won't bother you with. It's Big it's, Edith and Little Edith. Yeah, yeah. Big Edie, Little Edie, um, however you want to want to consider them. The older one is, like, in her 70s or 80s. She's yeah. she's decidedly an old lady. <laughs> um, and the other one is in her 50s. Um, trying to act way younger than she is. <laughs> trying to act like she's, like, 24. She constantly has this... Uh, headscarf on. Headscarf to cover her... Clearly graying hair. Yeah, I think she's it. Yeah, it peaks that's, out that's sometimes, and it's like gray very hair. white. And she did. She's she puts on this very youthful persona. Yeah, yeah, and we'll we'll get into their personas here in a second. <laughs> um, but that's basically this the the subjects that are being covered. Right. But the way the story is the the film is done. Uh, the brothers uh, who direct the film, Albert and David uh, Maisel, are just kind of fly on the walling it. 
Mm-hmm. They're not trying, trying to, to. Or trying to, as best as they can. Because obviously, as I think we'll, we'll, the point we'll reach is like, you can you can only remove yourself so far from the situation. Especially in this specific situation, it's a little different because yeah. of the, the nature of the subject. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's very hard to get a complete fault fly on the wall perspective unless the subject doesn't know you're there. Yeah. <laughs> Which... Uh, brings up or all sorts willing, of ethical questions. Yeah, or is willing to at least make an effort to continue doing their thing without acknowledging you, which yeah. these characters don't all the time. No, 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 no. As you can see, like, maybe, I don't know about the older Edith so much, but the younger Edith is clearly starved for attention. Yeah. Especially male attention. Right. Um, as she she makes very clear, I'm not making I'm not even making assumptions. She makes it very clear over the course of the film. Um, and here are two guys who are spending all of this time in their house making a movie. Uh, you know, one's working the sound recording device, one's mm-hmm. working like their their handheld camera. Like, yeah. Again, we're talking about it's the still pretty the early 70s where, era where you finally so have there, cameras light enough. There to, are no handy cams, but you can still have one person with a camera, one person with the audio bag, and exactly. I was actually really impressed with the quality of the audio in this oh, film, yeah. honestly. Oh yeah, um, and all these documentaries because you know you've got a boom or like a mic that you're just kind of like waving around, but you know, natural audio sucks. <laughs> well, he's not wrong. It's really hard to work with, but like the way that, uh, these films are done, I mean, obviously they're, they're professionally put together and right. It's, it's a uh, very clear. So that's a, like a little technical thing that I was noticing. Right. Right. But these, these brothers are in their home, uh, letting them literally just pointing their camera at them and saying, yeah, let, let us see how you live. Mm-hmm. Because they've made a splash in the local newspapers for being like this decrepit old house with former, like, yeah. basically former American nobility who's fallen on hard times. Um, Notably still with an African-American gardener, which is kind of pointed out at the beginning of the film oh, as yeah. like a, it's like a, we still have some old customs here, but it's kind of quaint and stuff. It's like, oh, that's kind of conspicuous. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, they definitely, they come from a different era yeah they feel like they should be living in like they feel like they should be living in like a golden age hollywood movie yeah like 40s or 50s kind of but they're not they're living in the 70s and they have no money it's almost yeah sunset boulevard ish in a less glamorous yeah yeah and and like in a very i mean sunset boulevard is very meta but Uh we've crossed that line into where we've acknowledged that this is reality right because to a certain extent it is um but you know these two guys are in their home spending so much time making a movie the younger Edith like is months very, and months and months. Very, you can tell she's very excited to have all this attention directed at her, and because she's so excited, she just gushes her story. Yeah, and I, she it, hams for the camera yeah, and everything. Yeah, yeah, which is definitely played up. It's very affected, but in her willingness to tell her story, and in the way she tells her story, and in the way she clearly perceives her own story, you get the complexities of their life. Of how they've fallen on hard times, of how they kind of almost ignore it. Like they don't like <laughs> like they, they acknowledge that they 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 that there are problems, but they don't collectively group the problems well, and are like, we live in squalor. Like Yeah, because the other thing that's interesting about them and especially uh little Edie is um how stuck in the past they are mm. and how very she, so she's like 
I used to live in the big city. I love the city. I hate it here in the country. I just came here because of mother and like how she puts all of her problems on her mother. Like literally oh, yeah. every single one of her problems is her mother's fault. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but the other, the other thing aside from just being so stuck in the past is she's constantly saying, my days at Grey Gardens are limited. I got to get out of here. Yeah, I need she's, to go she's live my own life. Going and back she to never New York leaves. City. And we're there no. for so long that you're like, she says this all the time. She's never going to leave. Yeah. Yeah. And I haven't, I haven't looked it up because I don't want to ruin the conversation. Uh, but I will look it up afterwards what eventually happened to them. Yeah. Uh, because just judging by their ages and when this documentary happened, they're more than likely they're no not longer here alive. anymore. Right. Um, so, like, their story has ended. Um, but she's she's a character who simultaneously little Edie, escapes who, who most to of the, the film she escapes out. to the past and she escapes to the future a uh, presumed future right in an effort to avoid her terrible terrible present mm-hmm. um and you, the the filmmakers don't say that like when we when we get to Grizzly Man, Werner Herzog is going to tell you yeah, that he kind tells of thing. You what he's going to say, um, and he's he's a very I mean clearly he's a very astute artist. He's a very astute observer of human nature. Um, definitely has very a very colored worldview. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's a very specific worldview, um, but we don't have that here. We just have characters telling their story, um, and it's that thing that you strive for in, when you're when you're doing narrative which is subtext you strive for it yeah. you don't want to you when you're writing a narrative story you don't want to bash the audience over the head with what is really going on you want that to be evident so that it feels revealing and it feels emotionally heavy um, and it connects to you on that deeper unspoken level and that just happens here naturally mm-hmm. because we have um because we have uh, a person in front of the camera so much that both her words and the truth behind her words, the reality behind her words, become evident. I don't know if I want to use the word truth. The word truth is going to become very sticky today. Yeah. In this podcast. So, but but one thing that I do want to start getting into here, because this is going to, uh, you know, be the basis of all discussion for documentary, is how the filmmaker speaks to the audience. Right. So, um in Bill Nichols' pretty famous book, Introduction to Documentary, he goes through a lot of the theory and uh, ethics and stuff of documentary, and he kind of lays out uh, literally this grid of different ways that uh, documentaries speak. So you, first of all, have an embodied versus disembodied voice. So if you are seeing characters speaking or um, interviews and stuff like that, that is an embodied voice. A, vo- a narrator, a voiceover is a disembodied voice. Um, so you see that a lot in Werner Herzog and Ken Burns and stuff like that. Uh, here we have an embodied voice. And then the question is, is it a, a direct address or is it indirect address? So in this film, there's a little bit of a mix, but for the most yeah. part, it's indirect because we're just seeing we're conveying an idea through the actions of the characters rather than having them tell their story uh, directly to the audience, which we'll see in the thin blue line. Yes. Um, (laughs) Yes. So, yeah. So as far as cinema verite goes, it's primarily uh, embodied voice, seeing our subject um, who is basically the way that we're getting our perspective and, uh, indirect address through their actions, except in this film, she does address the filmmakers uh, yeah. at certain points. Um, so 
that that is something that you always have to take into account when you're watching documentaries because documentaries, unlike narrative films, which as we've talked about before, there's always what the film's about and what the film is about. Mm -hmm. Um, And where in fictional film, it's a little easier to just kind of slough off the, what the film is about, about part of it and just kind of make something entertaining and stuff like that. In documentaries, documentaries are made to, tell something they're made for the filmmaker to convey something to the audience their perspective they're all biased in some way or another and the question is how you get that across and in this one like you're saying it's subtext it's we're going to very specifically structure what we show you when going back to uh you know the kuleshov effect right right um in order to get this idea across because they have so much footage from over such a wide range of time, which is another main tenet of documentary is uh, seeing a subject over time in different situations or different seasons um, and seeing how they change or like in this case, don't change. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. uh, This is the only film this week that's like that, but that is one of the major ways of uh, especially in cinema verite from this era or cinema verite from any era, that is how you get your point across because every documentary has a point to get across. They right. don't, you don't make a documentary for no reason that it's always the filmmaker trying to say something. Right. Right. And, and you know, that's, that's one of the interesting things when you're looking at the array of documentaries and I should, I should specify the array of good documentaries <laughs> that are out there and there are a lot it's not it's it's not a uh, it's kind of a niche yeah um, and the, the other thing that's interesting is the different fandom yeah is 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 different kinds of documentaries so we're talking about kind of very uh theatrical like wide audience based films but there's also right. like you know at this point especially with how accessible uh filmmaking is and how many people can do it like there's also kind of a utilitarian form of documentary where like pbs documentaries is like we're gonna take a subject and just tell you a bunch of facts about it yeah but almost ken burns style yeah exactly i mean he's done he's done both kinds and i think that there's um uh i don't know that there's like a specific like term for documentaries that are uh almost an info dump no, no, the other one, the the one that we're talking about this week where it's like, ah. you know, it's a more uh, trying really. to present a point of view rather than facts yeah. in a sense. I don't know. Maybe somebody's ther- theorized about it. Somebody's yeah. theorized about it. I don't know who. Um, but yeah, one of, the, uh, one of the interesting things when you look at the, um, the array of documentaries we've picked today and the array of documentaries that are available... Because uh, this will not that, be our last documentary episode. <laughs> obviously, it's a very it's a very big topic, yeah. but it's kind of niche. It's kind of hard to get into. Um, I I've seen documentaries, but this is this is the first week where I've really done serious study on it, which is part of the appeal for doing the podcast. Right. If you're wondering, <laughs> one of the reasons that we do it is really getting into yeah. And before I took areas. documentary class. Um, at college, I really didn't ha- have as much appreciation, but you know, once you get into the theory, it's really fascinating. Right. So right. Just and, to- it, and even if it's not your preferred method of making films, it can teach you a lot about how to convey a story effectively and, and how to thoughtfully structure a narrative right, and stuff like that. Right. Um, and the, a really interesting thing to look at today is, uh, the subjects that are chosen by mm-hmm. documentarians. Um, and I will say one of my 
one of like my my personal core beliefs that I don't think is like controversial. Somebody might argue with me on this. Somebody will argue. What are we talking about? <laughs> Seven billion people in the world. Someone would argue with, uh, with me about this. But I believe that every single person on the face of the planet has something interesting about them that is worth telling. Um, yeah. Now, some people have a lot more. And some mm-hmm. people would have a lot more appeal than others. Some might have a very niche audience. Um, but, you know, it's almost like there's all these stories available. As a, If you were a documentarian, there's all these stories available to tell. And the question is, which one intrigues you? Which one is so interesting that you decide to devote your so much work? Because documentaries yeah. are freaking hard to make. But which ones create a really interesting story? Um, and that's something that I uh, find really fascinating about the modern state of documentaries, which I should probably save most of this for the overall notes. But the fact that since when do we ever save anything for docu- <laughs> overall notes? We're so bad at that. Um, but, you know, since filmmaking equipment and like the the ability to make a film about someone, uh, specifically if we're talking about documentaries about people. It's so readily available. You have like even you make a documentary on your phone, just like I'm gonna get an interview oh, yeah. from you, an interview from you, whatever. Um, is this Hold kind it of this way? <laughs> always Don't this way. it this way. What there are, are you no crazy? Movie theaters that <laughs> no. like this. That would be a weird. Could you? Movie I'm sorry. I'm going to go off on a tangent here. But could you imagine a movie theater that instead of being like what we have today is like five rows across, but in, but like. Five stories high, and you have and the like four balconies. Be like thirty feet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then you just have like a big portrait screen. It would yeah. be awful. It would be terrible. It would be so terrible. That's not how we look. Our eyes are this way. <laughs> somebody would. Somebody be into that. Yeah, I bet Elon Musk heard that. It's like I'm going to put like, that. I'm going to do this. <laughs> I'm going to do that as, as well, along with his tunnel system. Yeah, and his Teslas and his Mars. I'm sorry. <laughs> Total <laughs> Elon Musk tangent. Um, Wasn't expecting that today. Right. Anyway, the 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 no way of subjects. <laughs> Nobody expects the Elon Musk Inquisition. Um. So the subjects you can pick for documentaries. Yeah, Sorry. it's it's given rise to this um, emergence of like what's called a mini documentary or a video profile, uh, which you can find tons of on YouTube oh, and yeah. Vimeo and stuff that I just love watching because, as you're saying, there's so many interesting people. So, you know, if your grocer looks interesting, you can get a cheap camera and make a documentary about them. And uh, there's just such a wide range of how you put these together and how you present someone's story that you know, kind of just goes to show your point. But that's not what we're talking about because Grey Gardens definitely has some interesting subjects. Oh, it that, definitely uh, does. Um, but it is something where it's like, it's not something that they do. Like, they didn't do something to make themselves notable or oh, anything yeah, like no. that. It's it's literally uh, just what they don't do, <laughs> honestly, uh, that makes them <laughs> the, the interesting. The sheer amount of neglect they yeah. have towards themselves that is flabbergasting. Yeah. Um, and it's not like they're the only people who live like that. The I think the weird thing for a lot of people is because let's be honest, if they weren't connected to the Kennedys, right. I don't think this would be quite as interesting. Because we we open the film with a bunch of uh, newspaper clippings. Yeah, of, you know, Jacqueline Kennedy goes to help her her relatives clean up and relatives or whatever. And so I'm assuming that's kind of where they heard about these people mm-hmm. and. Uh, but like, you know what? I wonder what is going on yeah. over there. <laughs> it's it's that it, it creates this really interesting contradiction where you look at 
the Kennedys, which are almost American royalty, uh-huh. and then you look at <laughs> you look at the Beals, who are like a, ca- a cadet branch almost, married into the the Kennedys, and you're just confounded. You're like, how, how, yeah, how can you be like this? And in that contradiction, you have um, you have your story, you have your interest point, um, and you you hear it in their story. Where <laughs> so you have the visual aspect of the film, which is where you see the squalor, right? And that's most of the squalor, most of the disgusting stuff. Some of it comes from what they say and how they discuss their situation, but most of it comes from what you see. (laughs) And like when she goes up to the attic and she just pours Uh, food on the ground for raccoons raccoons that she knows lives in the attic. I'm sorry. And then you see the raccoon with a little piece of bread in its mouth and you're like, why would they feed them? Why? They would just leave. Like, leave a window. Like, and the attic is totally, like, destroyed. Like, there's windows <sighs> busted, and there's no light up there. That's the other thing we should talk about, because um, as far as, you know, being cinema verite, one of the things about, especially this time period of yeah. filmmaking, is that they brought lights into every room. Oh, yeah, you First have to, First of all, yeah. I don't even know if the electricity was on in there. <laughs> but <laughs> no second clue. of all, like... They just the filmmaking gear needed a lot more light yeah. Um, oh, yeah. for that kind of mobility. So you can see it in a lot of the footage. They don't try to hide mm-hmm. it or anything like really big, powerful lights um, going on. But, uh, you know, that that is another thing that takes the subject out of this, like trying to live a normal life, which these yeah. characters don't try to do very much, especially when yeah. you know, little Edie is talking to it's not like the filmmakers. Yeah. It's not like they're being distracted from important things. Yeah. And that's one of the, like one of the most famous scenes is when little Edie does her dance that she's been talking about for weeks yeah. and weeks and weeks. She's like, I'm practicing this dance. I've, I used to be a great dancer. And such a good dancer. Yeah. And she like walks down the stairs and does this little prancing thing with the tiny American flag. <laughs> and, uh, is really pathetic like everything else but then but at she's the same just, time like oddly charming yeah because it's because that is you know her like she's putting she's being even more put on at that point definitely but it, it's also her like it's her personality yeah and then after she does that she's like david you're all i've needed i, need, I just need a man to help bring bring <laughs> what's that she's like talking to david um who's not the cameraman he's the sound guy but she's yeah. like and, and the film opens with that, too. She comes up and she's like, oh, how are you, Albert? And all this kind of stuff. Um, so that's it's it is cinema verite, but it also uh, kind of crosses a little line because they never uh, like initiate any kind yeah. of interaction. But e- little yeah. Edie is constantly they, talking. They to like them. slowly become characters in the film mm-hmm. by the command of the. The, of the subjects yeah. because of the subjects involved in them. And that that's that's where we picked up that she was um, she was really needing um, or craving attention, yeah. especially from some men. Yeah, because the other question is... She was craving some approval, yeah. What, like how different the film would be, not if it would be different, but how different it would be if the filmmakers were female, you know? Oh, very different. Because half the <laughs> film, like, it's so... You can see them interacting, but the way that they interact, like performing for the camera and for these male documentarians yeah. uh like as you've been talking about changes everything about what side of their personality that we see oh, if yeah. they have been female filmmakers there might have been there probably would have been a lot of uh kind of competition going on because they're so insecure you get the sense <laughs> off themselves. of them that they would be they uh, yeah would be doing it would be that. kind yeah. of like like what are you trying to say about me rather than let me just like put on my yeah. best side for you yeah 
So that seems to be that, the characters we're dealing I know. with. So that's that's yeah. another thing about documentaries is just just by virtue of who you are when you're making in, a documentary, it changes what your documentary it, feels yeah. like. Yeah, yeah, and as we'll get to seeing Grizzly Man, like Werner Herzog is very good at bringing out the drama in people. Yeah, in, and and that's, all that stuff. That's, but yeah. that's also a special situation because half of that is you know Werner, Werner Herzog interacting with the interviewees, but half of it is a subject that he's never met before and true and how he interacts with himself. Yeah. So, but we'll get there. Yeah. Um, so as I was pointing out, um, earlier, the visual aspect of this film kind of, you know, denotes the squalor that they live in, in the house while everything they're saying, like the audio aspect of the film, it, doesn't sound like they're living in squalor like they've convinced themselves that they're not like i said earlier like the younger edith is definitely living in the past and the uh, a pretend present which i don't think is going to come at the same time or a pretend future at the same time to kind of avoid her present and in that is really that character conflict that reveals so much about them Uh um and the other thing we should talk about when it comes to documentary filmmaking is how a documentary is made because it's a little different than a narrative yeah, documentary. Yeah, just like the 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 way production happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because obviously, if you're doing a narrative film, ninety nine percent of the time you have a script. Yeah, you know what you're going to shoot. You shoot it. Maybe the story changes a bit on set. Maybe it changes a bit in editing when you find out what works, what doesn't work. But for for the most part, yeah, you know what it's going to be. You have a structure from the beginning, from the conception before you start yeah. shooting. But what happened here? Is these guys, the the Maisel brothers, hung out in Great Gardens for like six months, yeah. shooting like basically everything. Yeah, ended up with hundreds of hours On of film, film too. Like that's <laughs> film too. Oh my gosh, it's hard enough to organize digital digitally, <laughs> but geez, with film, near impossible. Um, and then that's when the writing happens. Once you have everything, yeah. that's when the writing happens with documentary. That's when you decide. You already know the subject. Mm-hmm. But that's when you decide the plot points you're going to hit, the story aspects that you're going to focus in on um, for, for, the, for the film, for the documentary. You know, what do you want to highlight? What don't you want to highlight? What characters are going to stay in? What characters are going to stay out? And the same – and true, yes, the same thing does kind of happen in narrative editing. But it doesn't happen to the same extent or challenge that yeah. happens in documentary. And when you're talking about like a documentary director, they probably do more work with the editor than they do with the camera crew. Yeah, so there's – and that this is to different extents. But specifically with Cinema Verite, the way we're, mm. the way we're talking about mm-hmm. it, you're crafting your story after you have all of your footage, all of your material um, – so, yeah, so you shoot everything and then you basically write your script and what it's going to be. Yeah. So, but <laughs> yeah. what's really important is when you're shooting, you still have to have some specific idea of what you're going in for because it's very important in documentary, um, as I think I've alluded to, like to make sure that you still have your um, time and place specified. So, the, what the Maisel brothers do really well in this film is show a place because we're constantly in this house so that's yeah. that's pretty simple but yeah, the showing, house is like the titular character right, of the film yeah right so lots of exteriors but showing the way that they show passage of time is what they do really well because they were with these women for so long and for most of the film everything is very green it is 
obviously a garden, so it's like trees everywhere. It's un garden, un, right? Uncapped. It's like basically a wilderness. <laughs> it's like the forest reclaimed the, the house. One of the first shots yeah. um, after she comes out and greets the the filmmakers is she goes into these bushes and just literally is engulfed in these yeah. <laughs> leaves and stuff like that. And uh, but the other way that they do that is that that hole that we were talking about where we walk through the house and like, oh yeah, raccoons, uh, they've oh, made a hole in the wall over there. It'll probably all come down soon. <laughs> and by the end of the film, that wall is completely gone, and they it's, don't mention it again. But you see that and you're like, we've been with these women for so long, and nothing has changed. Like they can yeah. cut pieces from six months into you know six months later, and. It's like they're they're just on loop. They're living their life on loop, yeah. like a record, yeah. like, which is a big a big thing about. Yeah, they're um, constantly singing. How Big Edie used to be each great, other singing. Right, right. Big Edie used to be a great singer. Little Edie was a big da- uh, a great dancer, and so they're like singing and playing these records that just go over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's mm-hmm. what their lives are, yeah. and that's the way that you weave in. Because um, you're not telling us what's going on, but you're weaving metaphor and you're weaving. Um, all of these, uh, like you've been talking about, subtext into the film to tell us what you're trying to say without telling us. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. It's because the essential uh, show don't tell, infer yeah. don't tell. Because while while narrative cinema might be made up and it is made up, it's based on how reality works. And certain films, to a certain extent, like obviously, like if we're talking like you know westerns or sci-fi, like we're getting pretty far from reality but a lot of it is grounded in how life actually functions mm-hmm. how you know which we talked about before yeah. it's it's about conveying a central like human truth or theme yeah even if you're in a fantasy world yeah but like the way the way we construct characters might feel played up in cinema but it's based off of how uh filmmakers and writers see characters in real life and you kind of get that that missing link that you might not see in in narrative cinema when you look at documentary mm-hmm. and you you really get to see like oh yeah people really are that complex and full of contradictions because we all are mm-hmm. nobody's really simple nobody's two-dimensional um maybe somebody is <laughs> but they'd be really awful like they'd be a really awful yeah. person um Everyone is full of complexities and, you know, documentary really pulls that out and leans on that to make uh, a good film. And I think that's why this this film has lasting power, why we keep coming back to it. Um, it's really well made, um, mm-hmm. but it's not like it's technically brilliant or anything like that. Like it's well yeah. edited. It's well, I mean, the cinematography is pretty, pretty dang good. It's not fantastic, but it's pretty dang good. Um but the characters are really what make this yeah, such it's all a about strong the movie. The sub again choosing mm-hmm. the subject because not just because they're complex, but because there's no there's no justifiable simple reaction to them. I think yeah, because you you're because they're presented complexly. They're not just presented in yeah. this one way. I mean, in a sense, we're supposed to feel pity for them and this yeah. like odd fascination and how weird yeah. they are. But it's also like we're seeing vulnerable sides of them. We're seeing very presentational sides of yeah. them. But we're seeing they're they're trying to present as much of their personalities as possible, or as yeah as they can with the camera in the room. Yeah, like we've been yeah. About. You can't. You can neither wholeheartedly absolve them, nor can you wholeheartedly condemn them. Yeah, you have to be somewhere in the middle, and not just somewhere in the middle. But kind of at both extremes at the same time, yeah. which is like a full range of 
uh, human emotion and human reaction that is really hard to get to in most narrative films. Yeah. But when you pull it off in a narrative film, you really know and it really shines out. And it, it does the same thing here in a documentary, um, which is why Great Gardens is great. <laughs> right. So there are situations like Great Gardens where you're going to go in and you're going to film everything and then uh, craft your story afterwards. But some documentaries uh, are a little easier to plan out ahead of time because most of the events have already taken place. They have like, a plot. They have, a, they have an actual plot. Right. That happened in real life. So that is the case. Defined of, as a series of events. <laughs> right. So yeah. in our second film, The Thin Blue Line from 1988, uh, you know, it's the story of this cop killing that happened in Dallas on Thanksgiving weekend in a weird, creepy coincidence. Oh, hey, we're weirdly we happy to be recording 30 minutes from Dallas on Thanksgiving weekend. If, if it's just as it just so happens, there's a lot of weird timing coincidences that just happen yeah. when you do a podcast yeah, about they film. Follow us. So, since this is an event that took place and, um, I don't remember how, what the time difference between the actual case and the film being made was. It was like, it's like 12 years. 10, 15 years, it's like right? 12 years. Yeah. Um, it, was, it happened, uh, the, the crime happened in 1976, and the film is shot and released in 1988. 1988 right. So, so a long time, which is kind of important. Right, yeah. right. So for Errol, Errol Morris, like, he knew the facts of the case, he knew what was going on. Um, but there was, I don't know how it was brought to his attention, but basically uh, he realized that they had imprisoned the wrong man in this case, uh, or there was heavy suspension that that might have been the case. Yeah. And uh, so he goes back and interviews the two men who were part of uh, you know the case, what happened that night, the men who basically gave them their lead on the man that they arrested uh, and... Than the guy that they arrested. Got arrested, yeah. <laughs> um, and he interviews a lot of the cops that were part of this and their thought process and, and stuff like that. But the thing that makes this film stand out as a documentary is Errol Morris's use of reenactment, uh, which, as we're saying, this is coming in uh, after Cinema Verite had been well-established and was very popular around this time. And Errol Morris comes in and he's like, let's stage things that uh, happened. Let's go back and film in a very film noir-ish, um, in some senses, Wes Anderson-esque very. Um, style. Um, some of the things that happened in the case. So, for example, what they're talking about the cop being killed. We're seeing a gun uh, shooting out of a car window. We're seeing the cop falling. We're seeing very stylized uh, shots of you know people silhouetted. So we're not seeing faces, but just kind of these recreations that give you a sense of you know what could have happened, even though there is no footage of what actually happened. Um, you know the thin blue line or why body cams were created, <laughs> basically. Um, but yeah, so that that is the interest interest in this film is, and also as far if we're talking about documentary voice, this is Errol Morris doesn't do any narration. He doesn't you know overtly put his perspective in the film, but right. he does do interviews. So we have people sitting down talking to the camera, telling their side of the story, which we have right. several different sides of the story going on, yeah. and we are left to weed through and not. We're not necessarily left to weed through it on our own because yeah. Errol Morris has put these together in a very specific order. Yeah, he's kind of got like a glowing neon arrow saying like, <laughs> this guy did it. Yeah, this not guy. Not me, is. like that guy. Yeah. Right, right, right. right. Um, so, yeah, yeah. So it's instead of just 
re like piecing together slice of life clips. It's mm. piecing together people's stories, people's, um, you know, sides and interpretations in a very specific way to lead to a very specific conclusion that yeah. this man is innocent and this man is actually the, uh, the criminal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which was the guy who gave the lead on the, right. on Randall Adams, who's, so that's who's Randall like Adams, our main character who, who was convicted, convicted and, uh, later released after the film came out, the, the Dallas judicial system was like, well, we got to retry this yeah, now. So the film was actually, um, instrumental in getting him exonerated. He yeah. was originally on death row. By the time the film was made, he, that sentence had been and commuted uh, to life commuted. in prison. Right. Um, and then he was actually exonerated. Yeah. So after it was commuted to life in prison, after the Supreme court, like the federal Supreme yeah. court, overturned the case and then the the dallas uh district attorney or head judge whatever it's called well, yeah uh, commuted it to life sentence so that it couldn't be retried again at the district level which could have gotten him exonerated through the judicial system instead of having to have a freaking documentary made um, yeah so about it's it. it's a testament to the power of documentary and how like not just showing these are the facts of the case this is what happened yeah. blah 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 but showing a more emotional side yeah. showing the people telling their stories telling yeah all sides of the story and then like you know we get instead of just the two characters we had in Grey Gardens we're getting the perspective of a lot of characters and we're forming opinions about a lot of people yeah. because people who are doing very sloppy police work um, yeah and that's it's not it's not the police work isn't really intentionally bad it's not like they're setting out to convict the wrong an person, innocent right. man it you get the sense over the course of um over the film that a cop has been killed they have no leads the other cop who was there is not like a reliable witness yeah um so they're having a really hard time finding it and because it's a, a cop murder case there's a huge public mandate and a private mandate from the police force itself to find, to to find the yeah. killer, to wrap this up, to make it look like the, the police force can't just be, like, you know, killed and messed mess around with. Yeah. So they're under this intense, intense pressure. So when this kid who actually committed the crime gives them a different lead, they hop on it. Yeah. They hop on it. And whether or not, you know, they, they knew he was guilty as they were convicting him, I don't know. But it was very clear that they really needed and wanted Something, a conviction. Right. And he seemed there was just enough dots to kind of point to the fact that he was tangential, tangential to the crime. Mm-hmm. And that was that was good enough for everybody involved, um, even though over the course of the film, it becomes very evident. But it's yeah, it's also kind of interesting because, you know, that is interesting in itself but there's also a little bit of a of a spin put on it in as far as uh how the one lawyer who quit after this case because they were trying to get randall adams um acquitted like during the actual trial and uh he got sentenced to death and he basically lost all faith in the judicial system yeah but basically he he gives this quote where uh he's like yeah it's kind of a thing among lawyers where uh it's it's easy to get a guilty man um, thrown in jail. It's hard to get an innocent man sentenced to death. And yeah. he's like, I feel like the judge kind of puts it as a gold star on his chest that he doesn't, he's not totally sure that he's guilty, but he got him uh, convicted. And so like that just like makes everything and sketchier. The, the judge seems like so and, and proud by of the, himself. By the way, yeah. we should mention that at the point this film comes out, he hasn't been exonerated yet. The Supreme yeah. Court case has come out. 
but he has not been exonerated yet. He is still in jail. Yeah. Um, it's been commuted to life so they can't be retried um, based on the findings of the Supreme Court. And like, you know, a lot of the cops are still they're still clearly convinced that he did it mm-hmm. or at least they're happy enough with the evidence as is that he did it. And like the, Oh my gosh, the judge is, it, so it went he to doubles the, down. it went to the appeals court first where, um, Randall Adams lost again, nine to zero. And then in the Supreme court, Randall Adams won eight to one. And so the, the judge who tried the first case is like, well, that still puts me up 10 to eight. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, like, Oh my gosh, that, that's not what's important. We're talking here. about the innocence of <laughs> someone like, who sent us to death to yeah, die. Yeah. Like that's not the importance of your job. And he keeps saying like, it's not about who's right and wrong, but if you counted the votes, I was right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so that's, that's what I'm yeah. saying. Like you're forming opinions about this yeah. guy. Through what he's saying and the places and ways that Morse is putting it in the yeah. film. And to throw this back to one of our, um, not World Tour, but one of our Sam Ryan Sobrero episodes from earlier mm-hmm. this year, uh, we have to talk about Rashomon or the Rashomon effect. Yeah. Um, and if if just a quick refresher on what that is, Rashomon is a movie by uh, Kira Kurosawa who and, and the movie kind of covers a crime that happened and then four like basically completely different retellings of the story yeah. from everybody involved and, and how everyone spins it a different way yeah and the same thing kind of happens over the course of this movie as we get everyone's different perspective um over a real actual crime that happened and by the way just real quick i feel like this is almost the birth of the modern true crime movement yeah. with you know like there's whole channels now devoted to like true crime and even serial podcasts that got super popular and yeah thing. yeah they all kind of cover um real life crimes that happen in the same way that the thin blue line does um, where they don't give you the answer right away, but they're still kind of leaning. And even, I would even throw like Bernie into that mix and stuff. Oh, Cause yeah, Bernie yeah, yeah. like rides the line of documentary. Yeah. Uh, but, but it's it, still like a narrative. Uh huh. And that script, so, yeah, right. It's, it's basically like a thing that happened. There are some characters who are the real people from the town. Um, mm-hmm. but it's almost like the the reenactment is the main part. Right. It's like it's like the opposite of Thin Blue Line, where it's mostly documentary with a little bit of reenactment. It's like mostly reenactment with a little bit of like actual documentary stuff thrown yeah. in. Yeah, and of course, you know, all of this different retelling of the story evokes the Rashomon effect, which is you know kind of like messing around with this idea of truth and what really happened, and when different uh, versions of a story create a conflicting idea of what the truth really is. And it's, it's kind of really nice. That's echoed in the reenactments. Um, mm-hmm. so, uh, because we probably see the reenactment like a hundred times. Cause the thing is over he, the course of the film yeah, and the, you see different aspects of the reenactment change right. as different parts of the story come out. So like the first time we see the, 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 the first couple times we see the crime take place, we don't see, young Randall Adams bushy hair on the driver of the car who shoots yeah. the cop. Um, but there's a certain point where one of the witnesses says, I saw a guy with bushy hair. And then from every time in the reenactment we see moving forward, we have a guy with bushy hair. In the and seat. probably the most blatant example is when they're figuring out that uh, the car that the original woman <laughs> right. had, uh, that the, the other cop, she told them, Okay, it's a blue, whatever it was, a charger or something. Yeah, it was like one make, and then it turned out to be another make. Yeah, and they literally show two two different times um, 
this the same clip from a reenactment of a blue car speeding away, but it's the two different cars. And granted, they look very similar when you put them oh, yeah. side by side like that. So it's it's a way that you can use the uh, uh, the video and his re recreation to show like. She had some validity, like she probably shouldn't have said, like it's definitely this car because they spent a lot of yeah. time looking for the wrong car. Yeah. And but again, you can see where she's coming from. Yeah, and again, there was probably tons of pressure on her mm-hmm. to commit to a type of car. And you know, you and I would probably say picking out the make of a car is really hard. But I'm I'm willing to bet most cops are trained to pick that's, that up. That's what like, one of the other routine. cops says. He's like you know, if there's a normal witness, like, sure, you expect certain inconsistencies. But when it's a cop, you expect a little bit more specificity yeah, yeah. in those which kind is, of observations. Which is just another, you know, uh, an, another uh, stumbling block thrown in the path of justice in this, <laughs> right. in the, in this case. Um, but it's nice that that reflection of the truth, uh, the altering, the shifting form of the truth, the subjectivity of the truth appears in, uh, in the reenactments and is echoed in the reenactments. Because... I think we can all all agree that objectively certain events happened. Mm-hmm. Certain events did happen. Like, you know, even let's go down the molecular level. Certain atoms were in certain places <laughs> at certain times. And if you had enough observation on it, you could define it mm-hmm. and you could graph it and you can reenact it and you can model it. Hell, you can make a stop motion movie out of it. I'm um, having it exactly right. But because we don't have that specific observation, we're left with faulty human observation. And at that point, we move from objective truth to um, a Rashomon truth, this objective truth, this truth yeah. that is somewhere um, in the middle of this Venn diagram. Ethereal. That's not it's not any combination of all of them, but it's it's somewhere with pieces of all of them and then something else that nobody yeah. noticed. Yeah. And kind of gets to this idea of um, in cases like this. Or even just in the justice system in general, the truth doesn't the the objective truth doesn't matter as much as the subjective truth that you can prove, and that's that's the problem that they are facing um, in this case, as well as all of the pressure that is the, happening on, on on the judicial system um, to do it. And I'm not trying. By the way, they did a crappy job. The judicial system, the police yeah. did a bad job. I'm not trying to exonerate them. I'm trying to present them as complex characters. But the, the other thing that this film brings up that's really interesting is uh, motive. So mm. something mm-hmm. that Rashman didn't really bring up is like why you would say something uh, in a particular way. Not, I mean, it kind of brings that up in the fact of like just making yourself look better or something in a certain mm-hmm. situation. But in this one, it's like there's two cars that allegedly drove past what was going on. And, you know, said that they could see definitely it was Randall Adams and stuff like that. But, you know, maybe these people are not reliable. <laughs> maybe yeah. they were out for a reward or something yeah. like that. There was there was a couple who mm-hmm. get debunked really fast by like their neighbor. Or yeah, because he brings in or, like, like a coworker who's like yeah. who says like one of them came into work the next day and was bragging about how he would say anything to get the reward. And money. that's that's one of the things about like how Errol Moore structures these uh, interviews because like right after we're seeing this one person's testimony, the next person literally like her line is they were scumbags. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, Errol yeah. Morris is like just like throwing heaps of uh, suspicion yeah. on them so immediately. The, yeah. There's like the point, and then there's the counterpoint, and even when you. Because they were fairly obviously lying. Mm-hmm. Even when you see their their um 
their uh, their their interviews just on their own, you kind of doubt them. Like the woman in the couple was yeah so sketchy. She was clearly attention starved. She basically said she'd do anything to help anyone in order to get the limelight. Yeah, like she would do anything for it. But I do find it's interesting that the other witness, they there was another single witness mm-hmm. who they who they pulled out who also drove by well, near the same time he wasn't single he might have been after the movie came out <laughs> yeah <laughs> um who who makes claims you know we kind of have this sketchy idea of it because as as with all of them they're like it's hard to see someone else in a car distinctively at yeah, night yeah while like, you're moving i've never been able to see anyone distinctly yeah, in another car yeah no matter car. how slowly you're moving <laughs> <laughs> like come on and like he's giving a description of like each event that happens, it's like, how long were you standing there? How long were you driving <laughs> right? past? Like, how slow were you going? Um, of course, there was a cop car there. But anyway. Yeah. Um, but they, there's a delayed counterpoint to his. Because at, like, the very end of the movie, he admits that he had another woman in the car who wasn't his wife. Yeah. <laughs> and the cops knew that. And he was doing whatever he could to avoid getting in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um so, so again, you know, kind of like playing with motivation, playing with where certain beats go, because you really do have that option in documentary. Because again, even though there is a certain series of events that you have to present, you get to decide how they're depicted, how much time they occupy yeah. the screen, and so on, so and on. how and when you reveal information to the audience, which yeah. I think is really interesting because I didn't realize I'd seen this movie before, but I this time I noticed like how quickly we're told the whole case like every like just the the facts like what happened two guys met up at some point at some point they departed whether it was before or after this killing and then at at some point a cop was murdered after being pulled over Mm -hmm. um and you're given all that in like the first 20 minutes and then it's just like fleshing out who these two guys are uh Trying to work out a timeline, um, figuring yeah. out like like showing the police work and stuff like that. So it's it is really interesting from that point of view. And then also there's things that Errol Morris will throw in there as far as de- like throwing characters in a certain light that don't even relate. Like the first time we see that judge that we're super like skeptical about yeah. like he tells this story about his dad and the justice department that is totally unrelated okay, <laughs> it's just like putting his character in a certain light before we even know yeah. how he's related yeah yeah and i think i think the the way that information is revealed and the way they approach how they're going to make their argument is super important to the argument working mm-hmm. because they do have an argument their argument is that random randall adams was screwed over he is innocent he does not deserve in jail this other guy this kid um, who, by the way, is like in death row in California himself. So He's gotten in trouble on his own plenty of times after this incident. Um, that's actually something I want to bring up as far as this revealing of information because we see him in a very like nondescript location. All of these interviews are set up really well, but they're kind of like just vague. And yeah. Randall Adams looks like he's in jail. It's kind of like a yeah, he's 400 like, blow style fence Yeah, he's him. got like a blue denim shirt on. It looks like a it's, Cool yeah, Hand white. Luke. It has his name on it. Yeah, it looks like um, it's something out of Cool Hand Luke. And then the other guy, David Harris, is kind of in this really vague location. He's wearing orange, but we don't like... At first, you don't think too much of it until this one point yeah. where it was kind of like after the point that he made. Um, it's this like lingering on a shot that yeah. we'll talk about. And he goes up and scratches his head and you see that he's in handcuffs. And you're like, oh, okay. Oh, that okay. kind of changes like everything that he's Which been talking about. Which is like about. a really sly reveal when you're talking uh-huh. about picking your shots. 
um, in terms of documentary structure. Because like then you know, oh, he's in jail. Because the other the other bit of information that's revealed later on is that he's in jail for first degree murder in like Cal- in of a different case, yeah. and it's like because the Texas, whole I don't know the whole point is um, you know. Showing like he's he's a psychopath. He just kills people. Oh, he has no he's remorse. He's definitely stuff like a that. psychopath. Yeah. And Randall Adams is just a normal <laughs> dude. Yeah, he like, got totally screwed over. Like, and I'm not saying like normal people can't snap and something happens, but when you're given these two characters, mm-hmm. like one of them is much more suspicious makes, than the one you arrested. It makes the injustice of the situation that much more evident because yeah. not only is this like innocent guy in jail, which sucks. That's bad. That's awful. But this other guy remained out of jail and was able to do all these really terrible things. Because, yeah, that's the other bit of information that we get pretty early on is that immediately after this event, he goes and robs something in his hometown. He goes and robs a convenience store, uh, whereas the other guy had no... uh, No criminal history, no record of... He had just gotten a job. He was super excited. Like, nothing. And this guy has has just a record. (laughs) Yeah. And whenever the defense attorneys try to turn the limelight on this other guy who clearly did it, um, a lot of cops, especially the cops in his hometown, you know respond with why do you want to ruin a young man's life and mm-hmm. we're like except for that one guy who's like yeah this kid is is no good <laughs> like, yeah a lot of his like personal friends were like yeah that guy should be in jail well no that that one uh, police officer who was like i pick him up all the time like i knew oh, yeah. that this yeah, was yeah. gonna happen <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah like he was cruising for this uh-huh. he was destined to end up there um which i don't i guess at one point the cops just decided they had gone too far down the Randall Adams rabbit trail and they didn't want to switch now because it would make them look indecisive or something. Yeah, I don't know. Weird. I don't know. Maybe they were just trying to do it too But that's fast. the point of the documentary is like but showing yeah. all of this and clearly like presenting one side which, yeah. I mean, and it's effective because we're totally yeah. on this side. I do want to say one of the things that makes it so effective is that it doesn't start off with anybody except for Randall Adams himself saying that Randall Adams is innocent. It just starts yeah. presenting the story. And only at the very, very end do we have like an audio clip where David Harris basically admits basically that. Basically confesses. He doesn't like say it verbatim, but he's he, he like says like he knows he's innocent. Like uh-huh. I'm the only one who would know he's innocent. He's innocent. And he has this like super sleazy way of talking. Like, yeah. No one knows except for me. He's, he's <laughs> awful. He's the worst. Um, but I would say – that if you had started off the documentary by saying, Randall Adams is innocent, and that is the viewpoint of this documentary, you would lose a lot of viewers. You would, you would Everybody would be yeah. set up, ready to say the opposite. Yeah, because I can but, see an, an, an opening where, you know, you start with Randall Adams saying, like, I was wrongfully convicted of a murder and something yeah. like that. But we don't start there. Yeah, yeah. But be, by not obviously taking the side and just letting letting the evidence of the case speak for itself for one thing and letting the shadiness of the motives of the police and the um the judge involved show um in creating a shaky foundation for the case to to at the start of your film then by the end of the film when you when you start overtly making the assertion that Randall Adams is is innocent mm-hmm. we're ready to believe it as an audience whereas there's a lot of people who would just start off just believing the cops because they're cops yeah and just just starting that and if you said otherwise they would shut off and there is no arguing with them and it really like that's a really sly really good solid argument tool Mm -hmm. to lure somebody in it was shake their foundations without actually 
um, without actually like overtly attacking them. And then once they're ready to fall over, push them over. Yeah, and that, I mean, you, that pulls in like the most basic of literary techniques of uh, ethos, pathos, and logos, mm. where you're, you're first of all setting up an emotional story by starting with Randall Adams. So we see him, we're sympathetic to him, mm-hmm. hearing his story, um, and then you're you're going after the pathos, the credibility of your other other people because we've set up the credibility of our first one because like we like him already because he seems normal, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then the, yeah, uh, because David Harris is just so oh, and so David like Har- he's so scary. Yeah, he's just he's just like apathetic, and he's you know Jeez. I don't yeah. So it just like all these things. Um, go into like making us care so much because it's mm. so like it seems so obvious <laughs> it seems so obvious but of course this is like 10 years later so yeah. these two characters these two people may seem and act very different than they did at the time of the ten, crime which yeah, is 10 years like, ago what like the what a kind of fortuitous uh personification of that is just seeing Randall Adams hair <laughs> yeah <laughs> honestly like you, yeah, the first time you see him he's clean cut uh-huh. in, in mustache in his in his talking head interview he is he's clean cut it looks like they prepped him yeah. like I, I, I would I would if I was gonna make the argument that this guy is innocent like I but, wouldn't let him be shaggy yeah I mean <laughs> there I mean there's two ways either they did that intentionally or that's just how he looks now because it's 10 years later and he's like yeah. been in prison for <laughs> right you just get prison <laughs> so haircuts long. right and which uh, I don't know anything about that you know of Um, yeah but in in all the uh all the past you know photos and police sketches and stuff like that he's got huge hair big big mustache mustache. yeah like it's so it just kind of shows like these are kind of he's kind of a different person now i mean he's been through prison for 10 years well yeah that's a different definitely an experience and and that's just kind of a personification of that idea i think david harris is definitely more overtly awful yeah. Than he was 10 years ago. Because at the time of the crime, he was like a, a scared 16-year-old kid. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he's he's An like a messed up psychopath. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's easier to feel sympathetic for a 16-year-old kid than for a guy who is in jail for, like, homicide. Yeah. And I will say, I was... I, I Maybe it's just because I've seen so much true, true crime that's been inspired by this specific movie. But, like... I know how to spot like a talking head where it's like they're in jail, but you're kind of trying to obscure that they're not yeah. in jail um, and putting it on the border. And, you know, again, that thing we always talk about where you have to look through the lens of the time this movie came out in 1988 where true crime, um, the fashion that it is now isn't as pre- wasn't as prevalent. Then, you know, that could be pretty sneaky. Maybe maybe he's just really into orange shirts. Who knows? <laughs> right. Um, but I mean, even if you want to get into color theory, because these are all very specifically lit and all that, and <laughs> yeah, you've one's, got red, one's blue, one's red. Yeah. You've got yeah, like red and blue behind uh, David Harris, like basically police car yeah. lighting, and then you've just got kind of a white. Randall Adams white is like wearing white. Yeah, which is like for for color theory enthusiasts and people who aren't who are innocence, just still listening. Yeah. White basically means innocence. It means purity. It uh-huh. means um, youthfulness unspoilt good and they weren't able to like be as specific with some of the other ones i mean they're just kind of like generic you know the lawyer's house or the the judge's office and stuff like that but um like for those two those are our main ones that we care about and so they're very specific with the framing and the the clothing and stuff like that yeah 
Okay, so let's move on to our final film of the day, Grizzly Man from 2005, which was directed by Werner Herzog and arguably kind of directed by Timothy Treadwell. Well, I mean, really, so this is this is the story of Grizzly Man. I don't think he actually, I don't think he ever calls himself that. No, they Although, started a foundation called Grizzly People, so it kind of is right, along the same he's, lines. He is definitely characterized as someone who wants to be a grizzly bear. Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> I don't know if he really wants to be a grizzly bear. I think he just I really I feel enjoys. like he said that at some point. <laughs> he says it, but I feel like he's just like a really ardent um, fit grizzly bear enthusiast. Too ardent, maybe. Yeah. That's kind of the question <laughs> that's presented. Right. Uh, kind of like how you or I would like to disappear into some of the films that we really, really like, but we don't actually want to disappear into some of the films that mm-hmm. we really, really like. Um, but anyway... This is the story of Timothy Treadwell, who is the grizzly man. He is a essentially a bear enthusiast. I, I don't, I don't. Uh, he's he's kind of an ecologist, but he's not really a scientist. He just really, really likes yeah. bears, which sounds weird. But he he spent about thirteen summers um, in the Alaskan wilderness on the Alaskan Peninsula. Um, living like camping and living among grizzly bears and he says protecting them from poachers i don't know how true that actually is that's yeah, kind of left very vague i don't see him actually protect anybody from poachers yeah they, um, they basically like bring up the statistic that there's not that much of a poaching problem but no. since he loves the bears so much like any like possibility that there are poachers just sets him off <laughs> yeah yeah and he's he's definitely an advocate for um, for the park service taking more of an active interest in the bears and making sure they're okay. He spends a long time on a rant about how um, terrible the park service the par- is. How terrible the park service is. How they flew over like all of like twice during the course of the summer. Rant. I'm like, they're bears in the but wilderness, I know. Man. It's like, they're just yeah, going to do let the thing. wilderness be wild. <laughs> right? Um, they've, they've survived for hundreds of years without it. And essentially, this is and maybe even more than Great Gardens because we only have one character here. This is a character study. This is, let's take this guy who's already dead at the hands of a bear, we should yeah. say, which... This is not a... Spoil- <laughs> like, shocker that that, that yeah. happened. Um, but this is, this is dissecting all of the different aspects of this man. And they really bury the lead on how he became Grizzly Man. That comes kind of towards the end of the film. But they start off with, like... This is what he does. This is why he says he does it. This is different people's views on why he did it. And he kind of became a controversial figure because he was kind of a public figure. He um, he would go to schools. He would appear. Like I saw, I looked on IMDb. He has like a Letterman credit. Yeah. He was on like an episode of Letterman. Yeah, they um, actually bring that up in the movie because he's oh, talking right, about like, yeah. like, oh, people say, oh, they saw you on David Letterman. Well, screw that. <laughs> yeah. He's really yeah, yeah. mad. Um, but he's he's saying he's doing it to protect the bears. There's a lot of ecologists and um, they even go to a, um, a museum that's run by uh, the Kodiak people um, to kind of get their perspective on it too. And it's really interesting what what, uh, what that man says. He says that uh, Timothy Treadwell is essentially breaking like the natural order of things. Like the Kodiak people respect bears, yeah. but part of that respect is keeping a distance. There's a and, natural like, boundary. Putting, yeah, like putting like this is the world of man. This is the world of the bears and nature. And there's interaction, but there, you don't you don't cross a line. And to them, Timothy Treadwell was crossing a line. And there were a lot of people like there's a 
who like the National Park Service even says, don't mess with the animals. Don't get up close with yeah. the animals. Um, but Timothy Treadwell does. Like he hangs out with bears, which is really dangerous. Um, and he's makes a point of saying it's very dangerous. Yeah, he like constantly is saying like, you will die out here. You you can't handle this. I know what I'm doing out here, but you can't handle this. This is so dangerous. Yeah. And like, yeah. Yeah. I find it telling it like the opening shot of the film is, um, by the way, Timothy Treadwell, Partially just because of the um, the location, partially just because um, Treadwell is clearly interested in having like his own nature show, like the Crocodile Hunter, at some point, um, and partially because he's like an amateur filmmaker of his of documenting his mm-hmm. own story in a way. Um, so a lot of the shots that we see, a lot of his footage from the last five summers he was there, um, is by his own making. He has his own camera out there, but because of the location, because he's been doing it for a while, you get beautiful compositions. Mm-hmm. Like with the with the Alaska mountains out there and the bears in the background, Timothy in the foreground, it works really well. Um, but it's telling that his first shot is him talking about how he would never hurt a bear. Um, he would rather be killed by a bear than hurt a bear, mm-hmm. and uh, he does, does he does get killed by a bear. Um, but his his motives for being out there seem more personal, um, more of like a healing source for him. Because beforehand he was, they they document that in the run up to him starting doing his grizzly trips, he was like a lonely alcoholic who almost yeah almost killed himself. And that doesn't come his, out with his very, addiction. That comes out like pretty that comes later. Out very in the, late in the film. that's not a very sympathetic way to start. No, 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 no. It's very keen on starting. Um, starting with sympathy and then flushing out this aspect and this aspect, introducing controversy into Timothy Treadwell's story bit by bit. But one thing that's interesting with this film, again, is the the order of information reveal and how much we're told right up front. Like, we know that he dies. We know that him and his girlfriend, who is up there with him, are both killed by a bear. Yeah. We know there's a recording of it that's only audio because the lens cap was on the camera. Yeah. Um, we are with his uh, his pilot who flies him up to Alaska all the time, uh, who is the one who found his body and found the bear and all, all this stuff. So we're like given all these facts again right at the beginning and then we get into why we care kind of a thing. So we start with a yeah. little bit of setting him up sympathetically, seeing some of his footage. Uh, I think Fern Herzog says like this is all this footage that he took that I weeded through and then tried to figure out like who this guy yeah. is. Um, Herzog's very overt about the process he went through yeah, so to that's, make the film and also his take on Treadwell as a character, which becomes a key part of the film. Yeah, that's kind of the other thing that that is really important about this film as far as talking about voice is that not only do we have interviews of uh, people talking to the camera, but we have voiceover this time. So we have Werner Herzog telling us what to make of what he's showing us. Right. He's telling us, what we should make of it and what he makes of it. He literally just says like, um, you know, here Timothy talks about how sad it is that nature is cool and they eat their babies and whatever, whenever they're hungry. And he's like, yeah, I don't agree with that. <laughs> Cause not, I see not, not arbitrarily, by the way, only when there's like a drought and like, there's right, no right, food, right. like there's a famine going on, which isn't great, but just to put it in context. Anyway, yeah. Continue. And, and, but Vern Herzog just comes out and says like, I don't agree with him here. Uh, I think that, you know, violence and, and chaos is the, Ground zero for all yeah. <laughs> all of nature. Which is kind of the opposite of what the Thin Blue Line did, which was trying to like, ev- it was, I mean, it feels overt by the end, but it's a, it starts off very subversively, mm-hmm. like shaking your foundations like I spent maybe too long talking about. Um, and, and this is very overtly like presenting different 
points of view mm-hmm. and then juxtaposing them. And then in that juxtaposition, you have this really complex character who's starting to take shape by the end of the film. Yeah. But because he's dead, because we only have so much to go on, like we can only get so deep into what his character and is. And there's the, the meta element of the fact that Timothy Treadwell was basically making a documentary on his own. Yeah. Uh, filming all of this stuff and filming himself and... Uh, himself as a narrator talking to the camera and that kind of thing and Werner Herzog's take on Timothy Treadwell as a filmmaker as an ecologist um, as a persona as a person just all of these things that um, you know there's just so many layers because Werner Herzog never knew Timothy Treadwell Um, Timothy Treadwell never knew Werner Herzog or had any uh, take on how he should be portrayed but he Timothy Treadwell presented himself yeah. A lot. <laughs> oh, yeah. It definitely has a very affected presentation. Be- probably because he was going for a show. Mm-hmm. But And that's one of the things we learned later on is that he moved to California <laughs> just to be an actor. Essentially, mm-hmm. he tried to get on Cheers um, and stuff like that until he found out that uh, he really cares about bears. So that kind of like cast his whole like everything we see of him changes once we learn that. Cause like, okay, yeah, he changed his last name to be more theatrical. He changed everything to kind of put on this persona of the kind warrior. Right. He keeps calling himself, <laughs> I'm the kind warrior. The kind warrior. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And yeah. that's uh, what, one of the other things is, uh, is this, this element of like as much fabricated, uh, setups and stuff that there are. Um, one of the things that Werner Herzog points out very early is that, when Timothy Trevor leaves the camera rolling, like after the performed elements, there are moments that are more true. Like once you've done your thing, like for the camera, you know, the camera's there. And then once you've done with that, there is a moment where you can get to almost, uh, like pure, uh, unobserved truthfulness. Yeah. Um, a like really the, natural, genuine moment. Yeah. So which, there's a very specific example where he's talking, he's got a bear in the background. He's very, uh, you know, talking about the bear, saying something specific in naturey. And then once he's done with his bit, the camera keeps rolling. He's just kind of there enjoying nature and a fox runs through one of the basically foxes that he lives with. Yeah. Kind of like fox he kind of has like fox <laughs> friends too. Uh-huh. Uh, um, not fox and friends, just Fox friends. So once the, you know, the performed bit is over, there's kind of this moment of genuineness that is closer than normal that you can get with, with a, a camera present. And it's kind of a thing that Werner Herzog brings into the interview setups that yeah. he does. Because in this film, uh, different than in The Thin Blue Line where like they're talking to the camera, but it feels like you're just kind of you know, giving a statement or like saying some facts Mm -hmm. and stuff like that in this film. It's like, because the topic is so emotional, like it's about the person who died. The thin blue line is about a person who died, but it's not about the person who died. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So this person, this is about the person who died and the people who were close to him and cared about him. And so, but a lot of the interviews feel very put on. They feel very... Uh, staged. Staged yeah. and performed. Um, like, especially we're talking with uh, his ex-girlfriend. And she gets very emotional and stuff like this. But you feel like she's playing it for the camera. She's playing her grief. Um, and there's a moment where she's given a watch that he had. And it's so staged and it's so like... It's clearly, yeah. We were, like, like non-actors which, trying to act. Yeah, yeah. it may be... A, a, by virtue of them being non-actors, it may be... Mm-hmm. Uh, I also kind of think Herzog likes it. Yeah, yeah. Like I was he wondering likes, he how likes, much... He likes heightened drama. He likes 
as he will say many times, he likes conflict. So he sets something up to be very... But um, I think he also likes the meta element of this, like, showing reality, but also a staged, a uh, a facaded reality, if you will. Yeah. But there's a moment after she gets the watch and kind of, like, their bit is done. Like, you know, their direction was, here, you get the watch, and it's very emotional. And then they don't really know what to do, but she kind of actually has this realization, like... Mm-hmm. Man, he's not here anymore, and all I have is this watch. Yeah, this. But she, she she looks at the watch and essentially says, uh, "This is the only thing left." And she she cracks in that moment. Mm-hmm. She she really realizes like reality comes back to her. The fact that uh, her friend is gone now, and this is the only thing that's left. And it's this really genuine moment. And <laughs> if you watch the camera work very closely throughout all of the interview segments. You can sense when Herzog is essentially moving in for that moment, or I like to think of it as moving in for the kill. And <laughs> I get a feeling that Herzog would like the idea of that too, but maybe not. Um, well, that yeah. because he, you, if you watch the, if you watch the the frames of the interviews very well, they're almost always moving in, mm-hmm. or even just slowly zooming in, and they tend to go in right at the moment where the genuine thing snaps out. So, like, the moment that you have a two-shot, right, where he's handed over the watch, and then, I, I want to say it's Herzog working the camera. Maybe it's not. Um, I don't think so, because he, there is the moment when he's listening to the tape, and he has another cameraman. True. I think he's directing. But he, but, but the camera moves, moves in after that, because it knows, Herzog knows, that the real moment of this scene, of this, after all the stage stuff goes, goes through, is going to be when she's left with just the watch mm-hmm. and the the formality of it has ended and now we just have you're left with the watch and what how do you react to that yeah. and that's where that good moment comes in and plus you know in contrast to if you think of it from like a, a forming contrast we've talked about before pacing like creating a slow scene so the next scene feels faster um having a very staged scene uh, end with a very genuine moment makes that genuine moment pop. Yeah, it makes it stick out, and then it make it hits you. Even if in the run up to the scene you're like, "Well, this feels a bit, a bit put on," and then at the end it hits you, and you're like, "Oh shit, no, it was, it was, yeah. it was real." And the other thing, like about the camera movement that I kept thinking was like, it's almost like he's he's treating the uh, interview subjects like like Timothy Treadwell treating a wild animal that he's trying to film and like capture. Cause he's like moving around them. Like what they're going to do next here. Like yeah. capture them. And then you could tell that like they get a little uncomfortable, like especially that guy from, uh, 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 the Kodiak nations and uh, you know, he's moving around him and the guy's just like trying to follow the camera and like keep telling <laughs> yeah, his yeah. story. Um, yeah. And so it's like, you know, he, he's almost treating them like, like he's documenting a wild animal, like kind of putting them on the same, putting him in Timothy Treadwell's seat and putting his interview subjects in the seat of Timothy's subjects. I don't know. It's kind of, kind of a weird uh, thing. And, you know, I do like that comparison because we've already talked today about um, how when you observe a person on film, they act differently. And we certainly saw that to a large extent in Grey Gardens and to an extent in uh, the thin blue line. But I wonder how differently a bear acts when you observe it. <laughs> right. Like, I don't think they well, under, they don't comprehend the, the concept of a camera, like what a camera does. But when a non-bear is there just watching them, how how does that affect their, their behavior? And maybe that goes to the point of 
you know, maybe Timothy shouldn't be up to these bears' faces. But it brings up uh, a question that the, the film raises, which is the fact that Timothy Treadwell treated the bears like people, you know, and you yeah. can't do that. And Warren Herzog is very explicit when he says that I... <laughs> I'm going to the Warren Herzog voice. <laughs> like, I don't think that the bears are people. All I see is a cold, dead hunger for food or <laughs> whatever he says. Yeah. It's like, he's like, I don't see any personality in these bears. I just see this primal instinct that Timothy appreciated, but he also tried to like infer a humanity to the bears and like a, a relatability yeah. that he could find in them that he didn't find in other people sometimes, Yeah, which you can't do. And that's kind of the same thing. Like you can't put bears in people's places (laughs) yeah yeah he was projecting Mm -hmm. and in his projection on bears we see his desires for what the human world would be like and his ideal of what the human world would be wow we're starting to sound a lot like Werner Herzog maybe that's a good thing I know but then (laughs) but then he realizes that even the bears world isn't perfect whenever he sees uh, the dead fox or the little yeah. cub foot and stuff. And so yeah. he has this like idea of what a perfect world should be. And there is no perfect world that fits into Yeah, He can't that. find the perfect world to escape uh-huh. to. And maybe his, his efforts, for instance, uh, when, when the baby bears are being eaten, when there's no, um, when there's Which no we don't fish see, around, we just see a paw. because there's, there's been, there's been a, there's been a, a drought essentially like a small drought on Alaska mm-hmm. drought. Um, where there hasn't been enough rain, so the salmon can't make a run up the river. Um, so in an effort to try to save these baby bears and save all of the bears, Timothy um, creates a path through the rocks that's lower than than the rest of the riverbed so that there's actually a stream of water that the salmon can run up in his attempt to do it. Um, and then eventually it does rain and the bears are okay. But it's almost like he's trying to create his own his own Eden, which is like a term that Herzog actually brings up in the movie. Um, But it's unreachable. Mm -hmm. It is unreachable. But in his quest for his own Eden, we, we see many truths about the character in in terms of like a character study, but we also get all of these, um, I think unspoken, but understood on a deeper level of truths about how the world really works. Um, and especially how uh, how what Herzog like, perceives the yeah, world, right? exactly, exactly. Which is not um, uh, what's well, pessimistic, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Pessimistic at best, nihilistic at worst. It's true. <laughs> yes. Um, so in Great Gardens, we kind of had um, an implied character study because of the style of the uh, the, mm-hmm. the documentary voice of the directors of the auteurs. We had a very implied, and because the subject is people, it's not an event. It's not like <laughs> true something. It's like the subject is these people, so it's a character. Yeah, thing. yeah. So we get we get their we get their story through how they tell it. It's very inferred. You you get the clues, and you get it because we're humans, and we understand how humans communicate through mm-hmm. subtext and emotional stuff. I don't know, <laughs> but anyway, the um, cinematic rhetoric being right. used to tell the story as right. opposed to like normal literary or spoken rhetoric right but in but in grizzly man it is solidly a character study it's yeah overtly a character study uh Werner hartzog literally says there are different points of views this is a controversial human doing controversial things let us examine him uh from all these different aspects and he literally says these 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 conflate each other these conflict um and here let us get all these different takes on them and here here's my take on it too as 
the great Werner Herzog, <laughs> um, to, to take a, uh, to try to get at what the truth of Timothy's character is, but that's the thing about humans. They can't be reduced to a singular truth. They have to exist in, in conflict. They have to exist as complex beings. There is no way to simplify them down or distill them. Um, but in the attempt to do that through introducing different viewpoints throughout this film, we probably get as close as one can over the course of an hour and 40 minute film. Yeah, because we're seeing uh, Timothy Treadwell's account of himself from various different points of view. Because there are times when he's recording that's not like for his uh, perceived show or anything like that, where he's just kind of basically video diarying um, yeah. about... Uh, his love life, his uh, his oh, hatred gosh. of human society, like all these different yeah. things. Um, so we're getting his own account of himself. We're getting the account of people who knew him before he was Grizzly Man um, and his girlfriend who knew a lot about him on both sides just from what she heard. So like Werner Herzog is not portraying just this very sympathetic like, oh, feel bad that this guy, he tried to do what he loved and he died doing it or something like that. He's like, this is a very conflicted individual uh, who has had, you know, alcohol problems, drug problems. He uh, finally found something that he really enjoyed and that kind of changed who he was. Uh, but even that wasn't perfect, again, with how, like, he didn't recognize the really dark parts of just, like, normal nature. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And then, uh, yeah, so we're seeing, like, but then also the very sweet and kind moments. And then we we even see a couple moments where he flips on a dime. Uh, oh, yeah. Like how he's so happy about the animals. And then he just like goes into a rage about the park service or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And then by the end, you're like, you, you don't feel bad for Timothy because Werner Herzog presents this very real possibility that you know, Timothy may have wanted what happened to him. Like he may he have of, gone yeah, back to Alaska like to be killed by a bear, like in a, not in that overt of almost, a way, but that's kind of, that's kind of brought up as an maybe idea. Maybe not like he was seeking it in that specific moment, but like that would have been the happiest way for him to have gone uh -huh. is, is to go at the paws of a bear. Oh. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but even as, even as, uh, as, as Herzog says in the film, the camera kind of becomes a companion. Um, yeah. And in, in terms of, uh, as I mentioned earlier, picking your subjects well, mm -hmm. Timothy Treadwell, aside from just being a really unique, uh, complex uh, character with different stages to his life, he did something really extreme that's really interesting to talk about. Like, conveniently, the guy was an amateur filmmaker, too. Right. Like, he did everyone a favor and documented his life in the yeah. run up to uh, his death. Um, which by the way, like 13 summers spent among grizzly bears and not dying. Still impressive. It <laughs> seems, seems way more impressive than the fact, like I would have guessed that he would die eventually, whether it be 13 summers or 30 summers uh -huh. at, in the wilds, whether it be hands or three the, summers, which probably most people probably yeah, would have assumed or three days. Right. Um, but 13 summers is a shockingly good run. Just, you know, I mean, the fact that he was out there taking beautiful compositions, making confessionals to his yeah. to his camera companion, um, being put in extreme scenarios that breed conflict with no one else around to judge his yeah. reactions. Like because the ultimate his, man versus nature. Right. Because his take on what he's shooting isn't that every single bit of it is going to be seen. 
as as they talk about earlier, as Herzog talks about earlier, there's there's a there's a pretty clear delineation between uh, the moments where Timothy is on, where mm-hmm. he's where he's clearly doing something that he wants to be saved for later and used in something, and when he's off, like in between those after moments, those moments where you see, but he still records those, but, moments. He, but he still records those moments, and the juxtaposition between the two helps flesh out the character. Yeah. Um, but and he just he just I'm so shocked. He left so much great material that of course somebody was gonna make a, a documentary about it. And I'm pretty glad it was Hertz. Yeah, but I think that the interest that's that's one kind of maybe the last thing we talk about is how how the film was used. Like how Werner Herzog took this footage and made it into a documentary about Timothy Treadwell, as opposed to what totally could have happened where you just take his footage and you make what he was making with it. You, you know, right. you, you make, make a documentary about yeah. bears, uh, you know, featuring Timothy Treadwell. Uh, but the way that Werner Herzog like takes the footage and like that footage can't really be used for anything else now, you know, cause it's so ingrained with this documentary and this presentation of Timothy Treadwell's life that uh, it, it, and maybe, maybe there was no way to make that nature show anymore. Maybe uh, just the fact that he died changes everything, which, uh, you know, in some ways, of course, it, it does. But, you know, it's just interesting that out of all this footage, what Werner Herzog does is takes it and turns it in on itself. Yeah. He doesn't take it and show like this was Timothy Treadwell uh, as a person, as a zoologist or whatever. Uh, he's like, this is Timothy Treadwell. This is what he was trying to present himself as. He like looks at it from all the angles. This is what he was trying to show himself as. This is what uh, he was like from other people's point of view. This is what he's like from his own point of view. This is what, you know, what people, he wanted people to see him as. And then there's even like another element that Werner Herzog goes into, but that no one can really go into, which is the fact that none of it is totally true because uh, his girlfriend who dies with him, Amy Huguenard, was with him the whole time and he never films her except for like three times. Yeah. Um, and uh, in, a, in a video that I'll link in the blog post, um, this this guy kind of goes into this whole idea that you know Timothy Treadwell lies about this in his videos because he's putting on this persona for the show. He's trying to look like he's there completely by himself, but he has people helping him. Yeah, and he has his girlfriend there with him a lot of the time, not all the time, but a lot of the time. Uh, and so he kind of lies about it, and then Werner Herzog lies to us about it because he tells us he only shot her exactly two times. Those are his words. He, we see her exactly two times and here's the shot that's handheld. So she's probably filming it, but she's not there only exactly two times. Cause she's there again at the end on like the last day or in the last tape. Um, and so again, it's, com- it's yeah. putting Werner Herzog and Timothy Treadwell's shoes where they're both like withholding information willingly and releasing it to us in only the exact, uh, order that, that, they're intending right it returns that ethereal nature of a, a subjective truth as presented by a storyteller mm-hmm. um which i think we can all agree after this uh, documentary episode is fascinating to look at <laughs> um but with that let's transition into overall notes um essentially like what did we learn today <laughs> um so as as we took a, a look at uh these documentaries i think we got a very good range of different different ways to have a voice within a documentary mm-hmm. because it's unless you're going to cross some weird ethical boundary where you secretly record people without them knowing it's impossible to not have a voice within a documentary and even if you were secretly surveilling people you get to make the choice you're still yeah cut. presenting something and whether or not you're having a narration you're still you affect the story regardless 
Um, and we've seen different ways of, of having a voice within documentary, as you talked about with that table earlier, um, in great gardens, we've seen where you can try to be a fly on the wall and reduce yourself as much as possible. And then, you know, sometimes the characters will pull you in as they did in that story in the thin blue line. Um, we don't really see or hear Errol Morris until the very end, but he has a very clear argument structured throughout the course of his film where he lures people in and then convinces uh -huh. him of this truth that he's come to believe. Um, and then in uh, the Herzog film, I mean, it's just, it's the, the voice is very <laughs> right, obvious right. and very German accented. Um, <laughs> and even just going beyond those three, there's a million different ways to structure. Yeah. yeah to structure and voice a documentary. Um, we haven't even talked about films that are like from a community, like, artistically like talking about themselves like the filmmakers like we get that a little bit in yeah. Timothy Treble but there's so many other ones there are um more like uh documentaries that are kind of artistically presented where it's not like facts but it's more like a a performance that's not fictional because it's trying to tell something that's true so there's just so many things that we've just kind of scratched the surface of the right, documentary right, right but even going beyond just the just the fact that you have a choice of voice, mm -hmm. choice of voice, it rhymes. <laughs> uh, going beyond the fact that you have a choice of the voice you choose, that that choice is important to how the documentary unfolds. Like, for instance, the fact in Great Gardens that the characters can tell the story themselves is what is yeah. so revealing about the characters. The fact in The Thin Blue Line that the documentary is structured so logically in such a solid argumentative way is what part is part of what makes it so convincing and the fact that Herzog has such a strong voice yeah in Grizzly Man is what makes it so deep thoughtful and um emotionally evocative uh and, and really interesting over the course of the film mm -hmm. keeps you hooked into it I mean that's part of the appeal the part of the appeal of Grizzly Man is not just the facts and the way it's presented well yeah the way it's presented uh not just the facts and the the footage but the way that Herzog uh, uh, approaches it. I mean, he's a very big personality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very, very commanding. <laughs> very, very much the showman who is um, just as interesting to watch and listen to in the documentary as his subject is. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, if you are going to make a documentary, that's a very important thing um, to, to keep in mind. And as we talked about with um, the different ways you can make or just how a documentary is made in general, it's kind of ethereal until you get to the editing room and then you try to pin it down through like a thousand different cuts. Yeah. Um, good gosh, I hope it's not a thousand different cuts. <laughs> Even a hundred sounds like a lot, but it might be necessary. But you can make those choices as you go along. You can really radically alter the structure of a documentary as you go along and find and play with the voice that um, that really works for the film uh, you're trying to make, for the story you're trying to tell, for the character you're trying to depict. Um, and unfortunately, in documentary, it takes a lot more playing around than it does in narrative. But uh, I think as we saw today, uh, when you hit it right, it really is enjoyable. Yeah. And there's a whole other element that we didn't talk about today because these films don't get into it too much. But there's an ethical element to documentary where uh, there's a line between being a documentarian and being a citizen. And there are some times when you're, if you're recording something that has, you know, criminal or illegal aspects, or if you're like, at what point, or like a, a dangerous aspect, at what point do you switch from 
recording it to intervening in it. And that's not something that totally uh, comes into play in these films, but it's something that we'll definitely have to look into in further watching. So, cause there's so much uh, just involved with documentaries from so many different sides. I would say it's less of a problem in narrative because everything you do in narrative is quintessentially made up, mm-hmm. made up storytelling. It might be based on something real, but it's made up. Um, yeah, and there's different ethical questions as far as right. Know, if you're portraying someone, like in our how, biopic how week, um, if you're portraying a person, are you slandering them? That kind of thing. Right. But that's right, totally right. different. And even just going into the way you make a movie, like, uh, like what is dangerous for a crew to do, what's yeah. not dangerous. There's there's a whole world to that. But um, but in terms of the the what you show and how you interact with the subject, not such a big question in narrative. In, in documentary, it's a huge question because you're dealing with reality. The stakes have gone up not just in terms of uh, the movie itself, but in the making of the movie as well. And there, there's something interesting in that, that the story of making, um, of making a documentary is almost, more, almost always, not always, but almost always more intense than the story of making a narrative. Like... I mean, there's there's inventions and there's stories about uh, really troubled productions all the time. Um, just look at the disaster artist. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I mean, even if you take kind of like but a one on one with this week, you have like all the stories that came out of the filming of The Revenant in the wild right. and stuff like that. And it's different in Grizzly Man. Like, is the film takes place mostly in the wild, but right. Werner Herzog never went to, <laughs> went to the wild. Well, right. I guess he went well, with, he the, did. Pilot, he went with the pilot, but he wasn't like living with bears for right. a month. Um, but in, in narrative production, you know, I mean, we pretty much figured it out. Like, yeah. I mean, there's new technology, but like there, <laughs> there's, there's a procedure to yeah. it. Like you get your script, you get your production, you cast your actors, you get your crew, you, you, you make the thing, you edit the thing. Um, which is all like really hard and interesting and complex. And we talk about that almost every week on this podcast, but in, in terms of documentary, the story of how you make it is almost always different. Yeah. And almost always has really real stakes. Like the the goal of Grey Gardens is not to slander the individuals involved. Right. Uh, if we anything, it's come away yeah. with them with a slightly negative perception. Yeah. But we're not like saying things that are not true yeah. about them. Yeah. And I would be fascinated to see their reaction to it. Yeah. Like if we could have had like almost like a YouTuber's react thing where we have a camera uh-huh. train on them as they watch it. That would be fascinating. And we didn't even mention like, uh, just talking about the effect that these films have on the world because our first two are incredibly like famous critically and even cult hits, uh, and Grizzly Man has got even more popular just oh, yeah. in the mainstream. Yeah. Um, just Most look at how many votes it got is. on our poll. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, like the Grey Gardens has a lasting legacy, um, even to the extent that after it became so popular, the Maisel brothers went back and they were like, well, if people like like seeing these ladies so much. We have so much more footage. And they made a whole nother hour and a half movie out of it called The Beals of Grey Gardens. Yeah. Um, and then, you know. Which I think that would have excited the Beals. <laughs> right. I think they would have been like, oh, people like watching us? Awesome. Right. Like, and um, then you have the Thin Blue Line, which literally changed like a man's life. Yeah, talk <laughs> about know? real world stakes. You know, because I mean, getting getting uh, him acquitted, you know, that's such a, you know, that film goes in to make a case 
it makes the case and changes things in the real world. It's not yeah. just a film that people are like, oh man, that yeah. was so interesting. And then Grizzly Man is more like informative and it, it, it kind of changes the way that you look at people who have an obsession or something like that. Um, so it doesn't have as drastic of an impact, but it's something that so many people are, you know, maybe morbidly, but interested in, in some yeah. form or fashion. And even just going off on a bit of a tangent, even going into, um, the development of technology between, uh, the handheld technology or the portable cameras uh-huh. that allowed great gardens to exist to grizzly man. I mean, the, the advent of a personal camera yeah. allows Grizzly Man to exist the way yeah. it does. Um, and it even kind of starts to approach um, this thing that has become part of our culture over the past, you know, two decades with the rise of a personal video camera uh, or personal video Not even phones, touching phones, yeah. Right? Like how – because we all have – we all have that view of ourselves. Like you said earlier, like – now we're with, – with the guy who's talking about the rise of TV, now we're all actors. Mm-hmm. Now we really are. We but are even, really always putting on a veneer. And it's not to say that we weren't before. I think everybody's kind of presenting depending on who they're around. But the fact that you can capture it all the time and if you even makes wanna, it a bit different. Right. If you even want to extend that to the extreme and say that – Snapchat and Instagram are basically constant running documentaries of everyone's <laughs> right. life. It's like everybody has their own little documentary going on, and sometimes it's All just, oh, look at this salad. But yeah, but and <laughs> sometimes and it's genuinely interesting. Even to that extent, you know, you have the the more put on and the more like uh, right. true versions. Like depending on the situation in which the even if it's a six second clip, like when Vine was <laughs> when was alive, it's like if the person you know is. If the person knows you're filming them, they're going to act differently than if you, they don't know you're filming them. You right. Know, it, right, 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 right. It changes. So, like, that, it can be, it's so, like, going forward, documentaries just can be even more prevalent in the ways that you can dissolve that line between uh, true, a person's true actions and a person's uh, observed actions mm-hmm. can just get even more, like, thinner and thinner and thinner. Yeah, and not to get too meta here, but. In a world where everybody always has a veneer or the chance of being recorded and having to put or having to present at any possible time, at what point uh, do we stop separating the truth of the person from the presentation the person puts on and yeah. just accept them both as part of the same person in one complex whole? Um, like if you were always presenting the same way to a camera, is that really a lie if that's always how you act in front of a camera? Like I act differently in front of my family than I do in front of like a group of my friends. And I think that's true for everybody. Yeah. Like that's just how – and I act even differently at work. Um, not that you guys aren't my friends. <laughs> we're buddies. Um, uh, yeah, and we act differently when we're recording a podcast. <laughs> right. or, we definitely yeah, act differently when we're recording a podcast. I think we sound a little less stupid, hopefully. Um, <laughs> or maybe we sound too much like we're trying to be smart. Maybe. Who knows? Who knows? We're going to go let, way meta today. Let us know. Um, but, you know, that whole question of mm. this technology that has allowed us to observe ourselves, uh, film, video, m- moving images, that has allowed us to observe ourselves as we never have before in the centuries past, how has that affected how we perceive ourselves as humans and how has that affected how we act as people in our day-to-day lives? Um, 
not to lay down too heavy of thoughts <laughs> on you guys. Um, but I think that's I think that's where we're going to cut it off for today. Yeah, just perfect place to end. Yeah. Next week we're going uh, from the trying to be real to Hollywood's golden age, where everything was very. <laughs> very uh put on and we're gonna duke it out a little bit we have a little bit of a friendly friendly fight between uh something that's totally <laughs> like there's no right answer there's no right answer <laughs> but uh it's it's a uh competition between which of the uh actress hepburns is better Catherine or audrey um yep and it's a, like they're totally different but we like to have some fun <laughs> yes. so we're going to look at uh, those two actors um, in because we both have a favorite. We do both have a favorite, and we should just come out with it. I'm Team Audrey. I'm I'm definitely Team Catherine. Alex is Team Catherine, mm-hmm. and uh, so we're going to involve you guys a little bit. This is gonna be the first of a couple episodes Hepburn where we're Hepburn. <laughs> it's the first week that we're gonna look really uh, heavily at actors, so it should be a lot of fun. Hepburn versus Hepburn, where the winner is you. The winner, yes. You get to watch Audrey Audrey and Catherine uh, at their best. Um, So in this first round, we've both picked a film uh, that that our preferred actress is very famous for. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we're going to look at Bringing Up Baby from 1938, starring Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant. (coughs) Yes. And uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, starring Audrey Hepburn from 1961. Uh, so yeah, everybody wins. <laughs> so far, we've seen Audrey Hepburn one time in episode one in a very minor role, <laughs> right, uh, right, right? On the right. podcast, that is. Uh, and so we're going to get into some actors and uh, classic Hollywood acting. Yeah, That'd be great. Yeah, golden age versus late golden age. It yeah, should be interesting. Um, but that is about all the time we have for this episode. If you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at, at JS Satchel, and I'm at Alex Geringer. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlinks.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next week. All right, see ya. You know what will get stuck in my head for ages if I let it? Yeah. waiting in the bushes of love. I was waiting in the bushes of love. Something's waiting in the bushes for us. Something's waiting in the bushes of love. Every day I'm waiting all day. I was waiting in the bushes of love. Something's waiting in the bushes of love. You didn't care about me.